Welcome to Christian Life Academy. We are working our way through the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689. This is our doctrinal statement of faith. It is uh, a traditional or orthodox statement of faith. It's what the church has embraced and basically was just restated by the Baptists uh, since the very beginning. And um, obviously, uh, other denominations have their own statements of faith. They have confessions, etc. Uh, but for Baptists, the Second London Baptist was the was the actually the second one. There was a First London Baptist Confession, but it was smaller. The Second London Baptist was actually modeled more after the Westminster Confession, which is what the Presbyterians had and still have today. They've made a few changes to it. Um, which are not necessarily bad changes, uh, but they had to do with government because the first uh, Westminster Confession was written in England under the king, and the view of the government and the church was a little different than uh, it was in America. So the Presbyterians in America, after the War for Independence, changed the Westminster, and then England eventually adopted that as well. So at any rate, our confession is based um, on our original, the first London Confession of Faith, but it's been modified highly uh, to take into account the excellent work that was done by those who wrote the Westminster Confession. So we're working our way through it. It's divided into chapters, and we are in chapter 2. Chapter 1 is of the Scriptures by necessity, because everything else that we look at in doctrine is based on Scripture. And if you don't trust the Scripture to be true, to be God's Word, to have no errors, to have not been corrupted through time, uh, you can't trust it. And if that's the case, then how can you trust any of the doctrine? Our faith depends on the veracity of scriptures. If the scriptures are incorrect, if the scriptures have been changed in translations so that they are not correct, if the original Hebrew or Greek that is used to translate the scriptures is not correct, you cannot trust the scripture. Now, that's easy to say, that's hard to practice. And the reason it's hard to practice is because most, if almost all, of the modern translations are based off of different versions of the Greek and some different versions of the Hebrew. So uh, we cover that in chapter 1. So we're not going to cover that again. We cover that in chapter 1. Chapter 2, we're talking about of God and the Holy Trinity. And in this case, we are working our way through paragraph 1. We've only been camped out on this for about three years. No, for about <laughs> two months, I think. And um, Yes, please. For about uh, two months, and that's because, you know, every one of these different attributes of God uh, are significant. I mean, when you talk about God is merciful, uh, there's a lot of aspects to that that you kind of have to unpack in order to get a feel for what that really means to us. Uh, when you talk about God is holy, God is just, we're going to get to that. Um, and we are actually in a section that's called God is love, and we're working through that section where we see a lot of things like his mercy and, and his grace and things like this. Thank you. And uh, so that's where we're picking back up. And actually, uh, as far as our um, outline goes, which we'll have to get you guys a copy of the outline, but as far as the outline goes, which we took from Sam Waldron's book, uh, we are under God is love, but we're in point number six. And uh, this is because we're reflecting back to the paragraph, which has that uh, line that God forgives, and I'll turn it back here so I can read to you directly. If you have your confession, you can find this in paragraph 1 of chapter 2. All right. So in paragraph 1, uh, it says that God is... I'll read the whole paragraph. That's easy. The Lord our God is but one living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, 
who hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will. For his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Well, that is a great, succinct paragraph on the attributes of God. But that is so comprehensive that it is impossible for us to cover that in one class, for sure. And in fact, we've been working our way through, and sometimes we're covering a word uh, through that process. So today, we're picking back up where we left off with God forgives iniquity, transgression, and sins. And sin. Well, first of all, what are those words? So you can see the definitions here on the screen. Um, iniquity is injustice or unrighteousness. Transgression is violation of a law or a known principle. And then sin is a voluntary departure from a known rule or duty prescribed by God. So in all three cases, you can see basically it's somebody doing something wrong. I mean, we could sum it up that way. But they are three different aspects for things that we do wrong. And so that's why they are actually listed separately in the confession. You'll see some verses that talk about these things as well. All we do wrong in thought or act can be forgiven by God and with the redemption of his son, Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter if it is an iniquity, it's a transgression, or it's a sin, which, by the way, an iniquity or a transgression would also be categorized as sins. But it doesn't matter what it is. All of these things can be forgiven by God through the redemption of Jesus Christ. There is no sin that, uh, so to speak, is unpardonable, except for the sin of not believing in Jesus Christ. If you don't accept Jesus Christ, that would be an unpardonable sin. That would be a sin for which there is no pardon. Uh, However, as we work through this, you'll see that God basically uh, punishes all sin. It is only the redemption of his son, Jesus Christ, and what he did on the cross that actually is used to be able to uh, forgive people of those sins. God's forgiveness reflects his attributes in action in what he does. So we talked about God is merciful already, um, and this is what you see in this whole idea of he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Does God have to do this? No. Does God, is God forced to forgive iniquity, to forgive transgression, to forgive sin? He is not. He is not required to do so. Now, we could say, well... Yes, he is, because his word says that he will through the redemption of Jesus Christ. Absolutely correct. Did he have to send Jesus Christ? No, he did not. Did Christ have to die on the cross? No, he did not. Now you say, well, yes, he did, because his word says it. I agree. Before the foundations of the earth, he made a plan. We see this in the scripture. We talk about this often, the covenant of redemption, where God the Father and God the Son basically came to an agreement. God would provide an elect people to the Son, the people that Christ refers to often through his ministry, and in turn, Christ would pay the penalty for their sins because he would not sin. This covenant of redemption happened before the foundation of the earth. There was no creation yet. There was nothing that was actually made, and so they could have decided at that point not to do that. Are you with me? In other words, God could have decided there would be no redemption by Jesus Christ. He did not have to forgive the sin of his creation. 
He was not compelled by his creation to forgive the sin. It was only his own love and mercy, his own attributes, that caused him to come up with this plan of redemption. All right. God's love, grace, mercy, patience, and goodness are all reflected in his forgiveness of our iniquity, transgression, and sin. Think about that for a second. His love for us, certainly. His grace, giving us something we don't deserve. His mercy, not giving us something we do deserve. His patience, his goodness, all reflected in forgiveness. In other words, you, it's, it would be very, very difficult to say that when God forgives our sins, when he does this, that it's not merciful. Do you see what I mean? You'd, you'd have to accept a clearly that is merciful. Why is that clearly merciful? Because we don't deserve it. We sinned. We don't deserve his mercy, but he did it anyway. Do you see what I mean? His not only forgiving our sins, but then giving us eternal life. Gracious. We don't deserve it. Gave it to us anyway. Right? You see what I mean? All of these attributes in, in his forgiveness, all of these attributes of God are seen in his forgiveness of sins. We see these things present in there. God forgives people who call on his name. Well, hard to go past that one when you're talking about forgiveness. Does God forgive all men's sins? Does he forgive every sin that everyone committed? No, he doesn't. How do we know that? Well, the Bible tells us that's how we know it. But there's lots of examples in Scripture you can think of. I mean, obviously, the entire point of hell would be for those who are sinful and were not redeemed by Jesus Christ. So God does not forgive every sin. Now, this is one of the things that gets very confusing to people when they talk about uh, what Jesus Christ came to do. And this is often used, particularly in evangelical circles. Christ came to earth to die for everyone's sins. It's not true. It's not true. He died for everyone's sins who would call on his name and ask forgiveness. Who are those people? We don't know. God knows. We don't know. Now, why do we say that? Well, just think through the logic of it. It's very simple to see. If Christ died for everyone's sins, no one is going to hell. The penalty was paid. Done. In fact, if Christ died for everyone's sins, there's no need for salvation. You don't need to repent. Your sins are already paid for. That's it. Get out of hell free card. Of course that's not the way it is. Did he die for your sins? Well, it depends on if you repent and believe on him. Then yes, he did. Then yes, he did. How many people did he die for? We don't know. It's not important. It's not important. But the point is, is that God has chosen in his divine will to forgive sins of those who Christ redeems. It's not everyone. If it was not so, there would be no one in hell. Because no one would be worthy of death. Because their sins would have been forgiven. They would have been paid for by Jesus Christ. Not forgiven, paid for. Tough concept. Tough concept. But when you look through the New Testament, you're going to see this over and over again. We'll see a few verses here that mention it as we go. God calls on us to emulate his attribute by forgiving others. 
We see this in his word. We're going to read a verse about that, at least one about that as well. We are called for in the scriptures to forgive others as the Father has forgiven you. That's what the scriptures tell us, specifically. And if you don't, if you can't think of any, like, well, okay, that sounds familiar to me, but I'm not so sure that I can know where that, okay, think about the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus taught how to pray. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our, the, our debtors. Now, was he talking about loans? Was he talking about loans? He wasn't talking about loans. But notice that he tells us, commands us to forgive others. Commands us to forgive others. But you'll see, as we read through a few verses here now, that you're going to see this reflected in the Scripture as well, over and over again, where we are commanded to forgive. And, of course, we talked a couple of weeks ago, you know, classic passage in Luke 6, with Christ saying how you deal with your neighbor. You can, this can apply over and over again, because what Christ is saying in that passage, where he says, if your neighbor strikes you in the cheek, turn the other cheek. If he takes your jacket, well, if he takes your robe, give him your coat. Specific on clothing that they wore. But if, you, if he takes one piece of your clothing, give him another piece. If he wants something to eat, give him food. Don't ask him to pay you back. If he wants money, give him money. Don't ask him to pay you back. All these things Christ says about how we deal with others, how we should deal with other people, is because this is a reflection of how God deals with us. He gives to you. Does not mandate that you have to give it back. You can't pay him back for everything he's given you, can you? It's impossible. But do you still try? You should. But it's impossible for you to do it. So it's reflecting his attribute. His attribute. Let's read some verses. So these are all verses that relate to just the few bullet points we've just gone through. Exodus 34, 6. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. Well, this is a talking about, obviously, if you're familiar with what this passage is in Exodus 34, it's an explanation of how God is going to deal with the people of Israel and how he deals with people in general. But notice that he says in this, in this particular verse, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, we're going to actually cover the next part when we talk about God is just, which says, and that will by no means clear the guilty, because he is just. So he forgives, but that doesn't mean that he just clears everyone from being guilty. 1 John 3, 4-7, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Now, that's a very clear definition. What is sin? It's a transgression of the law. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. Now, what is he talking about here? He's ta- First of all, he's defining what sin is. If you, do, if you transgress against the law, you are committing a sin. And then he goes on to say, in general... Here is, and he talks about, first of all, Christ came to take away our sins. There was no sin in him. And then he goes on to say that if you sin, you're not, basically you're not his. You haven't seen him. Don't be deceived. Now, you think, well, wait a minute. Doesn't that contradict other scriptures? Of course it doesn't contradict other scriptures. The concept is the pattern. 
It's the pattern. Now, we know that all men sin. It's only the forgiveness of Jesus Christ that justifies you. It is not your righteousness. This passage is very clear if you think about the fact that you are not righteous except through Jesus Christ. If you were righteous without Jesus Christ by not sinning, then you would be like Christ, would you not? Yeah, but you do sin, don't you? few of you are giving me one of these. I don't know. Yeah, no, you're not. Yes, you all sin. You all sin. And so, does that mean that you're not, you are not then a child of God? No, it does not mean that. Adoption as a child of God and forgiveness by Jesus Christ, hallelujah, is what makes you righteous. It's not, from my, not on your own. It's not from your, what you do by yourself. Romans 3, 23 to 25, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood and to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Interesting, we just used this verse last week because we talked about the forbearance or the patience of God. But again, all have sinned. It's only the redemption in Jesus Christ that are justified. Acts 26, 15 to 18, And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. So what are we talking about here? What is this, what is this thing that we're seeing described? Well, essentially, this is Paul relating what happened to him on the road to Damascus. So this is where Christ appears to Paul and speaks to him and tells him that he is sending him to the Gentiles. Right? That's what this scene is. And he says here, he's sending him to them so that he can deliver them from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive the forgiveness of sins. So how are they going to be forgiven? Only through Jesus Christ. Second. Chronicles 7.14, If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Whose people? Is it any people? It is my people that he is talking to out here. It is believers. It is not any people. Psalm 86.5, For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon me. So, again, just a verse pointing out that God is ready to forgive. God forgives. Matthew 6, 14 to 15. If you forgive the men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Well, that's very clear. This is Christ speaking. What are you to do? You're to forgive others as, they forgive, as, Christ, as God will forgive you. Is that important? Do you want to be forgiven by God? Yes, you do. Luke 17, 3-4, Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespasses against thee seven times in a day, 
and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Is there anybody else you can think of that in your life that does something wrong and then they do it again? Anybody you can think of, like you know you heard of somebody that maybe sins again the same thing. Well, I hope you're not really thinking any farther than who you see in the mirror, because that's you. That's all of us. You sin, you should repent, and you do it again. And you do it again. So here, what is Christ saying here? He's saying, if somebody does this to you, Seven times in a day, you should still forgive them. Isn't it interesting that sometimes you see Christians or even churches where somebody falls into a pattern of sin and they really stop forgiving them? Have you ever seen that before? I have. I've been in churches where that was the case. And, of course, usually the justification is is that it's a serious sin. I don't have to define them. You know the ones I'm talking about. It's usually like, well, it's a serious sin. So, you know, they, they did it, they repented, they did it, they repented. Well, we don't know if we can trust them anymore now. Really? What did Christ say? If they do it in the same day seven times and they repent seven times, you forgive them. That's what it says. Do you know why? By the way, do you know why we're told to forgive someone when they repent and they tell you that they repent? Why are we supposed to do that? Like, because it should bring up the question, right? I mean, there's an obvious question. What's the question? What's the, so if somebody does something wrong, and then they say they repent, and then they do it again, and they say repent, what's the question that comes to mind? Anybody? Be honest. Are they really repentant? You all thought it. Nobody wanted to say it. Yes, that's what you think often. True? It's true. Do they really repent? Like, they keep doing this. I mean, are they just saying that? Okay, so, good question. And the truth of the matter is, you don't know. True? Like, if someone says they repent from sin, do you know if they truly repented? You don't know. Who knows? God. Well, the person knows, right? The person knows. But besides the person, it's only God. And yet, Christ says, if they, do, if they trespass and they repent, even seven times in a day, you still forgive them. Why? Because that's who we're supposed to be as believers. Why? We trust God to chastise someone who needs chastising. We trust God. To bring somebody to repentance, to true repentance, if they need to be brought to true repentance. Or for God to say, this person is not repenting from this, I'm going to take them. They're going to go home to glory. That's it. Done. Game over. What about for non-believers? Interesting. Interesting. Different rules? Is it different rules? Does God's forgiveness apply differently to different people? Hmm. No. It doesn't. His forgiveness extends through Jesus Christ. 
He doesn't forgive those who don't repent. He doesn't forget those who don't believe. He doesn't forgive those who hasn't, he hasn't chosen. But that's not what he says to you. He doesn't say, only forgive somebody who is a believer. Remember we read Luke 6, and the passage was about how you interact with your who? I just quoted a second ago. Who? Your neighbor. Your neighbor. Does that mean your Christian neighbor only? Or is it talking about how you deal with other people? Look, we're the second tablet of the law, the six commandments that deal with you and other people. First tablet of the law, first four commandments, your relationship to God. Second tablet of the law, last six commandments, your relationship to other people. Was that only for the nation of Israel? Or was that a reflection of God's holy nature that he explained so that we would know how we're to treat other people? That's exactly what it was. So what God shows us over and over again is that our relationship to other people should be a reflection of him. And this would absolutely be true in our forgiveness of those who repent. It should be a reflection of him. Albeit not perfect, it should be a reflection of him. But this is very difficult for many, many believers and many churches. Sometimes people have to leave a church because they've committed a sin and people in the church can't get over it. The person repents, they do all the things they should do to repent from that sin, whatever it is, but people in the church can't forgive them. They can't see past it. Can't see past it. So what do they do? They end up leaving. So those who should embrace them the most, who should accept their repentance because they're commanded to accept their repentance, specifically by Christ, they're commanded to do it, they don't do it. Why? Because they've made their own judgment. That's the truth. They've made their own judgment. Look, if you're following what Christ says, you're not going to make your own judgment. You're going to forgive those that repent. Totally different story for someone who doesn't repent. We're not talking about that. We're talking about God's forgiveness reflected in us. Does that make sense? We're not talking about just any relationship with somebody like if they don't repent, how do we deal with them on that? We're not going to get into that part today. But we do see that we are told to be forgiving as God is forgiving. Now this, you know, when you understand more about who God is, I mean, who he really is, and believe me, this is such a, it is such a mind-blowing concept It is so much beyond what we can comprehend to really know who God is. But just the part that your brain can handle, the part that you can actually get inside your own mind to understand who God is, not just think he's this guy that made the heaven and the earth and now he's up there and we pray to him, not just that, but all the characteristics and how our relationships with each other, our relationships to him, our path for eternity, our creation, the beginning, the blessings we receive, the things that happen that are bad to us, all of these things are a reflection of God. Everything, 
when you start to get that in your mind, you start to see how unbelievably small you are and how unbelievably big he is. And I'm not talking about he's got the whole world in his hands. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about who he is and who you are. Now, once you learn more about him, like if you understand that you should truly be forgiving others when they repent, no matter who it is, you should be forgiving them when they repent, then you're going to have a problem with somebody saying that somebody isn't qualified to serve in the church for a sin they committed in the past. Ooh, now we're getting touchy. Now, we don't do this. (laughs) We try not to do this. Right? However, there are churches, churches you've heard of, in the area, that have the stipulation that if you're divorced, you can't serve as an elder or a deacon. Some, even a Sunday school teacher, you can't serve in any way if you've been divorced. And by the way, the church I'm thinking of right now, and most churches that I've ever found this to be true in, there's no other requirements other than that. That's it. In other words, it's not, well, if you didn't want the divorce, then it's okay, but no, no. It's just, if you're divorced, you can't do this. I remember that same church I'm thinking of. A man, early 30s. I just want to show you how far this goes. man in his early 30s uh, had become a believer four or five years before. He and his wife both became believers. They had some children, and he was on fire for the Lord. On fire for the Lord. Like, he was convinced that God was calling him to go into the ministry. He uh, wanted to go to Pensacola to go into the seminary, Bible school, then seminary. And to get into that program, you had to have a letter from the pastor of your church. The pastor of that church would not give him the letter. Why? Because when he was 18, he got married and got divorced. When he was 18. Met his wife, current wife, a couple years later. Got married. Then they got saved. In other words, a sin that this guy had committed, because God says divorce is sin, a sin that this guy had committed when he was, before he was saved, 15 years prior, was still going to keep him from getting into the ministry. See a problem with that? You should. Because that doesn't reflect God's character at all, does it? It certainly doesn't reflect this verse either, does it? Not at all. This is why we need to know who God is. Because when we consider how we are going to live our lives, how the church is going to conduct itself, how we're going to relate with other people, all of these things should reflect God. They should reflect His characteristic. They shouldn't be based on what we think. They should be based on what He is. Does that make sense? Can you see what I'm talking about there? Now, that's not... Divorce in churches is not the only issue. I mean... That's, an, that's low-hanging fruit. 
It's really easy for me to pick that one and to share that one with you, because that's, but there's many others. There's many others. By the way, the, who's the best example of that one? Who's the best example that your previous sins, before your conversion especially, should have nothing to do with your ability to serve God? Who? Paul. What did he do? Killed Christians. Was he somehow the only one to get a free pass? Of course not. Of course not. He, Paul talks about it himself. That he was undeserving of being used by God. Think about that. You know, sometimes, sometimes, probably not you, but I've heard of other people who actually resent being given something to do by God. What do I mean? Some of you are looking at me like, what? Like, I want you to give $1,000 to this. That's painful. I want you to help that homeless person, that beggar. That's painful. I want you to go knock on that neighbor's door that you don't know, who is not nice to you. They don't even wave when you drive past. That's a little painful. They say, well, am I supposed to be doing all those things? Well, yes, first of all, yes, you are. But I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about if God lays it on your heart to do it. If God wants to use you in some way, sometimes we actually kind of resent it. We really don't want to do it. We're resistant. Now, God, of course, has a way of making you submit. He can turn up the heat, can he? He can. But that's not the way it's supposed to be, is it? Shouldn't we be anxious to do what God wants us to do? And here's, here's Paul. Paul. We just read the verses. On the road to Damascus, Christ appears to him and tells him, I'm going to use you. And you know what he still says when he writes later? I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Why does he say that? Because he's a sinner. He still sins. And he did horrendous sins before Christ called him. Right? He did. God still used him. God still used him. How many times do we see this in the Old Testament? Branch is working through Genesis over and over and over again. You see, people that do things, flawed individuals that do things that they shouldn't do, and God still uses them. Right? Right? Over and over. Over and over. God should still use us, even though you're a sinner, even though you blow it. But when you repent, he forgives you. And that's exactly what we should be doing. When someone repents, we should forgive them and move on. And move on. Yeah, but I'm not sure they believe it. It's not up to you. Luke 17, 4. If he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him, as long as you think that he is really being genuine in his repentance. It doesn't say that part. He doesn't tell us to judge 
whether somebody is truly repenting. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm saying he just tells us to do it, just to accept the repentance. Sit and move on. Why? Because your judgment is flawed. You have your own sins that you're dealing with. He has not asked you to judge whether their repentance is true or not. Now, does he give power to the church to determine if a repentance is true? He does. Different circumstances. Narrowly defined. But for us as individuals, not true. We're to reflect exactly who God is, and he forgives. So should we. So should we. Okay, moving on. That was quick, huh? We got through, this is going to be a second word, same day, just saying. God is just. God is just. So the paragraph continues, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Well, this is the end of the paragraph here, and we, we say this is just because this phrase, stating that God rewards those that seek him and punishes those who are guilty, is a summary of, of God's justice. Does that make sense? In other words, the confession doesn't say God is just, although you're going to see many verses that say that, but it does reflect his justice in the fact that he does both of those things. Justice, what is justice? Well, that's giving something, giving someone what's due to them. Giving someone what's due to them. God must be just in his judgments because he is holy. So if he were to give somebody what they did not deserve, then that would not be holy. Does that make sense? In other words, if somebody was forgiven, Christ did pay for their sins, and God sent them to hell anyway, that would not be just. Right? That would violate God's character. Is there anything that God cannot do? Yes, there certainly is things that God cannot do. For instance, he cannot be unholy. He cannot sin. Can he make a rock bigger than he can lift? That's the old ridiculous straw man, so to speak, argument, illogical argument, certainly, that unbelievers will make. Well, if God is God, then can he make a rock so big that he can? God cannot do anything that contradicts his own nature. Of course, that, that makes no sense whatsoever. Can he make a rock so big that he can't lift it? That's impossible. It's illogical. doesn't make any sense. Not a good argument. He can lift you. <laughs> Let's put it that way. He can lift you. And he can lift you to heaven. He can lift you to hell. Which way is it going to be? That's a good turnaround question. Anyway, it's a freebie for you. So, there are things that God cannot do. He cannot violate his nature. So he cannot sin. And he cannot be unjust. He cannot be unjust. He is just. Now, again, this is, a, this is part of God's nature. We should be reflecting on this. If you think about the whole thing we just talked about, that if someone asks repentance, that we should forgive them, right? Is everybody clear on that? I beat that thing up for 25 minutes. Is everybody clear on that? Yes, you should forgive somebody who asks for forgiveness, right? Correct? Everybody with me so far? Say yes, I don't want to go back to this whole thing again. Okay, say okay, good. All right, so if God does that, right? Would we be just, then, in holding something over their head? 
No. Why? Because that's not reflecting God. And God says for us to forgive them. You see? It's, there, it's together. It's interwoven. These things are directly related to each other. That's kind of why they put them in order like this in the confession. Justice not only reflects punishing those who deserve it, deserve punishment, but rewarding those who deserve reward, right? That would be justice, both ways. Somebody who deserves reward gets what they deserve. Somebody who deserves judgment gets what they deserve. So there's two ways that we can look at it. One is positively described, and one is negatively described. So positively described basically is rewarding those who seek him, and then negatively is is punishing the guilty. So first, positively described. Rewarding of those who, them that diligently seek him. Well, God not only forgives those that ask forgiveness, uh, he rewards those that seek him. His forbearance or, or mercy on believers as a result of Christ's sacrifice reflect mercy for those that seek him. So this is the part of the paragraph that said the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now let's see some verses that talk about this specifically. Hebrews 11.6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So in Hebrews 11, we see the verse specifically that's used for the language here in the confession. He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Psalm 58:11. So that a man shall say, Verily there is a reward for the righteous. Verily he is a God that judgeth in the earth. Revelation twenty two twelve and behold I come quickly and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. So never see in the future, he is going to do that. Romans thirty one twenty one I'm sorry three twenty one through twenty six. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ upon, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. God is just, and that is why he's going to justify you because of your faith in Jesus Christ. If you do not have faith in Jesus Christ, you will not be justified. You will receive punishment. And that is the next part, negatively. There you go. Punishing the guilty. So again, paragraph one, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. By the way, when you see in the confession where there are footnotes, and we actually had, let me just back up here. All right, so that's at the top here, that's paragraph, that's the end of paragraph one, and you can see I've got it in italics, and then you can see there are these numbers that are bolded, and those are the footnotes that were in the original confession. So as we work through, we actually reference those numbers because that's the scriptures that they actually mentioned. So you can see on this page in the bottom, number 13, 
that's the particular verse that the confession has listed in it. Then after that, there's some additional verses that I'm adding that reflect it as well. The confession never is an exhaustive reference to all the verses to anything. It is only a few verses that are references to that particular phrase or that particular part of the confession. There are always many more verses than that particular part of the confession that are present. All right. So, I'm saying that because this section has four, three different footnotes in it, 14, 15, and 16. So God remains, ju- remains just in and through all of his attributes. He's just as he's holy. He's just as merciful. He's just as he's long-suffering. He's just through his love. The Bible links the justice or righteousness of God and the judgment of God. His judgment is righteousness, and it is just. So we can't, we can't think for a second that because God causes, let's say, the hurricane to hit a town, the tornado to hit a town, and it wiped out some bad people and it wiped out some Christians, that's not very just. <laughs> uh, that should make you laugh. Why? Are you really saying that your view of justice is equal to God's? That your view of what should happen is equal to, you know better than God? Of course not. Of course that's not true. We've got to be careful when we question God. Didn't Job teach us that? Should have. God is not accountable to anyone or thing outside of himself, but there is a law in his very nature which governs everything God does and says. So God is not accountable to us. God is not accountable. God the Father is not accountable to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. It doesn't work that way. God in his nature is accountable to none of his creation, nor is he really accountable to himself other than he can't violate his own nature. He's unable to violate his own nature. It's not a choice. Like God can't say, well, I think I'll just be just. And that's his decision. That is his nature. He cannot be anything but just. Why? He is holy. He is righteous. It is impossible for him to violate that nature and be unjust. It's impossible. He is just. So when we see something happening and we think that it's bad or we think that it's, we cry out, that's injustice, whatever it is, and it, usually it's not things that are actually nature. We do see that sometimes and we do say that sometimes. Tornado, hurricane, flood, whatever it is. Heat, snow, ice, you name it. We complain about it all. Sun, Clouds. <laughs> we don't like it at some point. It's not that. It's usually about other people. Why does this person who is a bad person keep getting away with it? Right? Or why is it that this person, who's such a good person, they're almost as good as me, they're such a good person, right? We think that. You know, it's not right, but we think it. That, and they're not getting rewarded by God more. Ooh, be really careful with those thoughts because they're sin. Why? God's in control. God is just. What happens, happens for his purposes. And if he wants us to know, he'll reveal it. And if he doesn't want us to know, he won't. And you know what? Most of the time he doesn't. He doesn't. How does a bad person get away with all these things? Why does the Bible say, why does the Bible say that no one can be accused of a capital crime except on two witnesses. Ooh, we're dipping back to the Old Testament. But funnily enough, funnily, I like that word, I made it up. Funnily enough, 
Christ restates it in the New Testament. He references Moses' law about the person not being convicted of a crime where he can be put to death. That's a capital crime. Lose your capita, your head, a capital crime. He cannot be put to death unless there are two or three witnesses. Interesting. How is that just? Because God enacts justice. That's how. See, if somebody gets away with something on earth, God can still enact true justice in eternity. Can he not? Will he not? He will. And the reason that it's for two or three for us is because we make mistakes. We make mistakes. If you don't know that, you can easily Google that. How many criminals in prison for capital crimes have been released after it was determined later that they actually weren't guilty? Weren't guilty. There's actually several different organizations that have these DNA projects, and that's what they do. They investigate crime scenes where they can find DNA to see if the killer was actually the killer. And there's been men released, and women released from prison, because they found out that their claim of being not guilty was true. It was some other DNA that was there. Now that actually brings up the question, which we're not going to get into, which is, is DNA one of the two witnesses? Hmm. How about video surveillance? Is that one of the two witnesses? Hmm. Hmm. Now, interestingly, the courts today say that both are enough of a witness. Not together, one. You got a video? That's all they need. Juries convict on that. How about you got DNA evidence? That's all they need. The problem is, is that sometimes it's wrong. Sometimes the videos have been tampered with. They're not right. They're incorrect. Or you, see, you think you see something, but you didn't see it. DNA's been wrong. DNA's not 100% correct. Isn't that interesting? You don't hear that too often, do you? It's not. Google it. It's not 100% correct. And yet, we're treating these things, contrary to what God says, as if it is enough to convict somebody. Why? We're taking justice in our own hands. God set the rules. He told us how to do it. Two or three witnesses. Well, yeah, but what if they get away with it? God will not let them get away with it. He will enact justice. So where do we go back to? Well, it's an easy one, right? Another low-hanging fruit. O.J. Simpson. Some of you are too young to know all about that, and the rest of you know too much about it. If the glove does not fit, you must acquit. Johnny Cochran said that, trying to get this glove that was found at the murder scene, O.J. to try it on, and he couldn't get it on his hand. That was, by the way, the turning point. Jurors said later that that was a turning point for them, is that when they saw that he couldn't get his hand in the glove, that they believed he was not the one who did it. And he was found not guilty. By the way, DNA evidence was found. The argument was that it was planted. And it might have been. He was found not guilty. Did he commit the crime? We don't know. You don't know. You might have your own theory. Pretty much we all do, right? We all have a theory, one way or the other. He seemed guilty. He didn't seem guilty. I don't think he did it. I think he did it. Whatever. Don't know. But he's not going to get away with it for eternity. 
God is going to have justice, just as he does on everyone. He must have justice because he's holy. It is a requirement for him to have justice. Now, so easy question. What if O.J. gets saved? What if O.J. gets saved? Then he's forgiven. Christ paid for that crime if he committed it. And all his other sins. All his other sins. He'd be forgiven. That's it. Now that's a... Then should he confess if he did it? After he repents? We're not going to go down that path. Because we're out of time. Alright, so we'll have to end because we're out of time for today. We'll pick back up in the same subject next week. God is just. Let's close in a word of prayer.